And thanks for joining us now on KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. On this edition of the program, once again, it's music from and conversation with Cheryl Hodge. Cheryl's a jazz vocalist and pianist who we heard from in January talking about her most recent release, Love Is. Now checking out a 2008 release, which has in part inspiration drawn from Miles Davis. It's also an exploration of different types of grooves. We'll touch on that a bit later in the program. In the meantime, the title cut, Indigo. You're gonna have it all with Indigo. Indigo. It happens every time with Indigo. Indigo, your tribute to Miles. You stated somewhere that this was a breakout album for you. How so? And I may indeed have the title cut playing in the background here, so we will get that Miles-inspired muted trumpet from Brad Turner as we speak. Nice, nice. Okay, so in Indigo, throughout the album, actually, I integrated parts of rock, some rock guitar sound into the mix. Also noting that I went to school at Berklee College of Music at the same time that Mike Stern did. He was actually in one of my ensembles Ah. with Michael Gibb. And I know that guitarist Mike Stern was a huge influence on me. So it wasn't just Miles. So when Mike Stern got into the Man with the Horn tour mm-hmm. and also Bill Evans, the saxophonist, I had a couple of friends in there. So I had a big reason to go check Miles out live. Up until then, I had just sort of worshipped him from afar. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> At the concert, sitting right behind you when you went to see Miles, you had mm-hmm. one of the greatest, a man that I love dearly in all his various types of jazz that he presents. Tell us who was sitting right behind you. Well, just within eye shot behind me and to the right of me was Herbie Hancock. And Chick Corea was there, too. Oh, Chick also. Which was, yeah, it was kind of a crazy thing because everybody who's anybody was there to see him. It wasn't just to be on stage with him. It was like... Whoever was in town, Larry Coriel, a few other great musicians, too. It sounds like all the monsters of fusion from the the earliest fusion groups. Oh, my gosh. So I felt super lucky because I was in about row three. I had fallen in love with Miles Davis music from the time I was probably 18. Then at that point in time, that was 10 years later, I was 28, I think. And I was a true fan. That night on stage, there was this luminescent blue light. And Miles was just glistening while he was playing. 
It was just the most magical night. Not just the music, but the feel that came through when the band played. It was just something I'd never seen before. It was really magical. Anyway, my boyfriend was best friends with Bill Levins, the saxophonist. Okay. So Bill said, hey, why don't you two come to a party? There's a party in Miles Davis' hotel room after the show. And I was just tugging on his sleeve like, we have yeah, to go, we have right. to go. <laughs> we have to. So we went to Miles' hotel room. Now, what was interesting about it, there was a person guarding the door. And then we got let into the hotel room, which was probably, a, I think it was double bed kind of situation. Probably the Sheraton, I'm guessing. But anyway... One of the bigger hotels. And when we came into the door, there were about 24 musicians already in the room. And no sign of Miles whatsoever. <laughs> and he didn't show at all that night, did he? <laughs> he ended up not showing. I'm pretty sure what happened was he probably started down the hall. He may have even peeked in and went, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, no way, I can't do that. <laughs> he probably, yeah, I can't do that. I don't do people, you know. <laughs> That's about right. It's like... A different hotel room or stayed in one of his bandmates' rooms or something. But it was pretty hysterical, you know, and there were so many celebrities. It was like the wackiest thing. I was sitting next to a famous drummer, and I can't say these people's names because I don't want to embarrass anybody or out anybody. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sitting next to this famous drummer, and I'm talking to him for the longest time. Tony Williams, and, um, Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa. <laughs> no, no, you'll never Philly Jones. Philly Joe Jones. <laughs> no. I'm going to keep going until you say yes. No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> okay, anyway, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> he, he was a famous rock drummer, as it turns out. He mentioned his name, and I said, that sounds familiar. Do you play guitar? <laughs> and his friend was laughing. He says, yeah, he plays guitar. That's it. But this famous guy had asked me to come visit him in his flat in New York. He had a flat. And he's like, come and visit me. And, you know, I was almost on the outs with my boyfriend. <laughs> We'd had a little piss. But he saw I was talking to this guy, and he went and grabbed my sleeve and said, it's time to go. <laughs> I never got to go out with the famous guy. You're now under the spell of In my life, I've had a lot of sort of near brushes and also lengthy discussions with a lot of the people that I loved. As a kid growing up in a small town, I had made a deal with myself that I was going to be in the entertainment business one way or another, and that I was going to get as many conversations in with my idols as yeah. I possibly could. And so <laughs> I set about, you know, as a kid in a small town set out into the world and had many, many wonderful, influential discussions, beginning with Candace Bergen when I was mm. 16. Oh, there's and, a start. Um, she talked me out of going into acting. She said, it's mm. brutal. She said, I, <laughs> I have famous parents <laughs> and it should have been easy for me, but it's never easy. And she said, think about another profession. <laughs> wow. So, Emmy Lou Harris 
sat down with me for about 45 minutes to talk to me about life as a musician. And then, you know, of course, through the years, I just made a deal with myself. I met Joe Pass. Cool. And went backstage. He showed me how to chew tobacco, which was horrible. (laughs) Way to (laughs) go, Joe. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. I said, no, I made a deal with myself. You know, I'll have a drink or I'll have a smoke with whoever, but I've got to meet you. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I just wanted to find out, you know, what was in these people's heads. Beyond chewing tobacco. Do you want to hear the Tom Waits Oh, absolutely. Because we were talking okay. about rain dogs before, but rain dogs had a different connection. Yet when I was looking totally up different. rain dogs, I was getting the Tom Waits song. So this is a great segue anyway. So, yeah, yeah please tell yeah. me about Tom. So speaking of talking to your idols as a youngster, so at that point, I believe I was 22, so I was pretty young, and my boyfriend was in the warm-up band for the Tom Waits show. He was the warm-up act. So I was pretty bored, and I saw there was a bar, so I went and you know sat down at the bar and suddenly realized next to me was Tom Waits. <laughs> and he said, uh, let me buy you a drink. <laughs> you know. So I said, yeah, that'd be great. And we just got to talking. I think it was whiskey. <laughs> I'm not really sure, but it was pretty, you know, it was one of the harder drinks. Sure. And so he said, where are you from? And so I said, um, I'm from the town you've never heard of called Oroville, California. He says, <laughs> Oroville. <laughs> so he said, I worked in the peach orchards of Marysville. It's just <laughs> south of Oroville. And so I went, oh, my God. You know, Marysville was like. I don't know, seven miles or something from Oroville. I said, I can't believe you worked in the peach orchards. You know, why did you do that? And he said, well, I was influenced by Woody Guthrie, you know. <laughs> so he kept telling me about, you know, Marysville and his life there, working in the peach orchards, picking peaches. And he said, is that billboard still there? Hmm. I said, what billboard? And he said, Burma Shave. I said, Burma Shave. That's wow. one of my favorite songs that you've ever written. Huh? I love Burma Shave. He said, yeah, Burma Shave. Yes. And so he gave the concert. It was unbelievable. And he had two standing ovations. And he was ready to go into number three. Hmm. And he said, for my next song, I'd like to dedicate this to a, a new friend of mine. This is called Burma Shave. <laughs> <laughs> I started jumping up and down, shaking everybody around me. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> He's a phenomenal performer. He was great, you know. Wow. So I think in Boston, you're bound to meet a lot of famous characters. And it's a wonderful place to live, really. When you were at that concert that we were speaking of earlier, was there anything during the concert that you learned that night, just observing how and when Miles played or didn't play in the case of Miles? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I wasn't really aware of until I was there was how much Miles put into the space between the notes. That's right. And how important that is really to music. And I never thought about it. You know, I'd listen to a lot of Charlie Parker, and there's no space with Charlie Parker. Oh, no, it no. Was just like, he plays every know, note there. A barrage of 64th notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I listened a lot to Coltrane, who did believe in space between the notes. But again, with Coltrane, he could always get on a rant, you know? Yes. And get going and not stop for a while. 
But with Miles, for instance, at the beginning of a solo, he might do one really long, beautiful high note and let it kind of drop off. And then he'd wait a little bit, you know, maybe four or five seconds even before the next note. Mm -hmm. And then he'd do something a little more interesting and develop it. And once again, after that phrase, he might wait again. And as he went along, this solo would begin to build and begin to build, and pretty soon you'd be into the meat of it. It would just reach a high point. Sometimes it would end on that high point, just let it fall. And you would just sit there taking in that pregnant pause and really enjoying what Miles said. You know, if you hear a brilliant solo and you don't get a chance to really take in what you just heard, it's loss. But with Miles, you really had a chance to soak it in and then you're ready for the next line that he might give. You know, not all the time. This is like some of his more interesting solos to me. This is what happens. And I had huge respect for this man because he changed the way that we listen to music, in my opinion. This is the second time this has come up. One of the times I interviewed Stanley Clark, he was talking about how Miles Davis pulled up to pick him up. They were going to, you know, whatever, go do something, shoot some pool or whatever. But he said Miles was always pulling up in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or just whatever, just the latest, flashiest thing that was fairly small despite the high price tag. It was a fairly, really a small car. And Stanley got into the car with Miles, and the only thing that Miles said to him was, space, space. (laughs) And Stanley, for the longest time, thought that Miles was talking about, yeah, man, there's not a lot of space because Stanley is a very, very tall individual. And then it didn't hit him until so much later that Miles was talking about, don't play every note that you have. Look at the space between the notes and that kind of thing. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. You're listening to KVC Arts. I'm David Fleming. Many past programs can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org slash arts. On this edition of the program, we are hearing once again from Cheryl Hodge. We heard from Cheryl in the past talking about her newest release, Love Is. On this edition of KVC Arts, it's a look at her not-so-new release, Indigo. Certainly among my favorites from Cheryl. And more at CherylHodge.com. I found your picture That didn't help me a lot Porta Vallarta You know you look pretty hot You wore hirachis From down in Mexico way And I was dazzled By every word that you'd say It's all together humbly, my dear But things are never bad as you feel Still, things can get bad This disc, Indigo, the disc opens with one called Give In. And this has such a cool, just strolling along kind of feel, almost like a Horace Silver tune called Strollin'. I mean, not quite, but 
So did you have this da-da-da-da thing going on in your mind and you wrote toward that cadence, or was it a phrase which came to your mind which had that cadence, cuerda viarta kind of thing? Oh, yeah. So I was into grooves. For the Indigo album, I was really groove-driven, I think, for the first okay. time. Okay. I was not as driven by melodies and chords as I was by grooves. So I had been gigging in Montreal and had heard some Michael Franks and loved the vibe that he was putting out. And I was very influenced by him at the time as a writer. I liked it that he could really lay out a groove that moved without whacking you over the head, almost like a Brazilian vibe. Mm. So I thought of that. And then I thought of just moving along in life. And so I had a horse flopping idea. Mm. I found your picture that didn't help me a lot. So keeping that Brazilian kind of vibe, Porta Vallarta, you know you look pretty hot. So trying to keep that sort of south of the border kind of vibe, even down into Brazil, some of those ideas, and then changing grooves on the chorus. I have to ask something because of what you just did, and I'll be cranking it up in the background. Did you make that sound with your mouth, or do you have some coconut shells near you? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> that was you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it was that moment from Monty Python's Holy Grail. <laughs> so... <laughs> On Give In, the story, it's sounding positive, but then there's the line, but still things can get bad. So what's going on here? Is this, oh, I don't know, when you transpose suddenly down to another chord for the spooky part of the song, and then it got bad. <laughs> so a lot of my songs have a dark undertone to them. Yeah. <laughs> I know I set you a cut from when I was in a punk band. And yes. A lot of my songs were about happy suicide back then. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. It's a sense of irony. Yeah, so, it was the 80s. Uh, it's basically a lot of my love songs are like, I need you. And then the second part will be like, like a hole in the head. You know? <laughs> okay. That's what that is. So, okay. <laughs> that's what that is. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. we can't always go back. We can never really go back. You know, we might want to go back to a relationship, but will it ever be the same? Okay. I mean, rarely. Yeah. Sometimes. Some of the bad things will still be there. You can't just... just yeah, if yep. you don't get yep. rid of them, they're, <laughs> they'll just be waiting for you. Yeah, you just move to another state. <laughs> Somehow it seems you've been 
don't know how it happened. Were all the songs on Indigo written for Indigo, or were some of these songs that you'd recorded and finally found a home with what you found on Indigo? A lot of the songs were songs that I had written like a year or two before and decided to finally record them. So, The Guide to Recovery. (laughs) This is a song about how you meet someone who's on the rebound. And you're saying to them, hey, I'll be your rebound. You're basically saying, I've been waiting for you the whole time. Here I am. And so The Guide to Recovery, you're basically telling the person, hey, I've been where you are and I know you pretty well. And I'm here for you. You know, recover with me. I'll help you. <laughs> nice. So oh, this a lot is... of people, that's their favorite song from that album. They Gotta always request it. They call it the chair song. Okay. Because okay. there's a line in it that have a chair. And I breathe. The guide to recovery. Cheryl, again from the liner notes, now I guess I'm wondering about the type of voice that one will find from you, and because it, it varies song to song, and what you have with Guide to Recovery and uh, FAR is the type of voice which comes about for the delivery and act of choice for you, in that this voice, hey, would be good for this song, or really is it just mm. so automatic when you're telling a certain song you get into certain qualities? It's not like you're trying to go to this pop thing or a whisper thing. It's the second. It's what you just said. Absolutely. Just happens. Um, It happens. Okay, so I spent many years as a studio singer, singing commercials. So I had to have hundreds of different voices. So it became a challenge for me to try and find my own voice, what resonated with me the most. And so finally, I settled into, well, does it matter if I have my own voice? I'm a songwriter, and each song dictates to me the way it needs to be sung. Mm, nice. And so I should, <laughs> I should write songs for a specific voice and always sing a certain way on an album. Those are the shoulds. And <laughs> I break a lot of rules. I break a lot of rules. But most often these days, I'm drawn to a deeper voice because, as you can hear, I'm older now. Mm. And I love the sound of deep voices. Oh, yeah. And I've always been influenced by deep-voiced singers. Oh, yeah. So I'm definitely moving in that direction. I would say I'm finally kind of finding my own voice, which is more of a low, bluesy voice that likes to belt it out once in a while. Here's a segue if I ever wrote one. If um, We're going to talk about some scanning that you do, but this is going to Caribe. Oh, yeah. And now this one, of all the songs on here, this one really has the one of these kids is doing his own thing kind of thing. It's got a, all of these have this, oh, I don't know, a dusky, dark, smoky barroom storytelling feel to it. <laughs> Except yeah. then you have this one, which is, it's Cali. got a samba kind of feel. You were talking about that south yeah. of the border or even down to Brazil or whatnot, this samba thing going on. 
I, very so I guess I just have to ask, how did this one make it into the mix? Because it really is standing out. <laughs> Unless, of course, you were talking okay. about grooves earlier. So, hey, Brazil. I was. Oh, yeah. I mean, more than anything, Indigo was my first almost groove-based album, you know. I was just into grooves, and I wanted a whole variety of grooves on that album. I didn't want one groove. But with Kareeb, the guitarist John Stoll had already recorded several albums with me, and I knew that I wanted John on the Indigo album. Of course I did. Oh, good Lord. He's one of the greatest living guitar players in jazz. He is absolutely indisputed one of the greatest living guitar players. So, of course, I wanted him on Indigo. So we had a day in the studio, our very first day on the Indigo album, which I believe it was at Randy Porter's house. Randy Porter lives in Portland, and he's an amazing keyboard player. And I believe that's where we were that day. That particular day, though, I had Charlie Doggett on drums, who is another like, hero of mine. I had a different drummer slated for that studio day, mm -hmm. and the drummer suddenly had to cancel. And John Stoll said, I got you, Charlie Doggett. I hope you don't mind. And I just about died because I just heard Charlie Doggett, and I was a total fan. So that was great to get Charlie Doggett on drums for that day. And Dave Captain, who has been voted over and over as the world's greatest undiscovered living bass player, mm. Dave Captain on bass. So I had just an amazing band. I couldn't go wrong. And I was really excited that day. And I remember the recording. It was the first take. It was the first take. Mm. And I hadn't had many of those because I'm such a perfectionist. I'm always demanding another chance. <laughs> wow. Please, can we try again? But with Karib, I love the song and Everybody just played it beautifully, and that was that. I just said, press it. That's done. Mm. And it's one of my favorite recordings that I've ever made, that one song. Loved it. There's a point in the song where you're kind of scatting but in addition to just scatting, yeah. you're doing something that I think may be more common with guitarists, and that is that you're scatting the same notes that you are hitting. And so that's a really right. cool effect. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know if this is any real reason to say this other than hopefully line it up where I can have that very moment playing in the background, but also just demonstrate one of the many voices of Cheryl Hodge that you will hear in yeah. this in the stylistic yeah. approach. Yeah. It's been music from and conversation with Cheryl Hodge for the entirety of this edition of KVC Arts. We heard mainly about her 2008 release, Indigo. Next week, more on Indigo and touching on one of Cheryl's other releases as well, another great one called One Day When I Wasn't Looking. Once again, more at CherylHodge.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVCR. Thanks again to Cheryl Hodge. And here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, Shireen Awad, Paulina Garcia, and Layla Boyd. Many past KVCRs can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And most past shows are at kvcrnews.org slash arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. In